one of the most important aspects of our faith can also be one of the most irritating, waiting. We hate to wait, I hate to wait. Whenever I'm waiting, whether it's in line someplace or in a waiting room, I often will take my phone out to distract myself from my waiting. And I'm not alone in that because we just don't enjoy waiting and we don't wanna be reminded that we're having to wait for things. And that's a problem for us, at least spiritually speaking, because God has something for us in times of waiting. But often we're so distracted that we miss it. So what is it that you're waiting for this weekend? I think all of us are probably waiting for this pandemic to be done. Maybe you're waiting for something else, more specific. Maybe you're waiting for a job or you're waiting for a change in your position or you're waiting for something within your family. Maybe you're waiting for a relationship. Maybe you're just waiting for some resources to come your way, or you're waiting for spring to finally come. I think all of us are waiting for something in our life. In fact, those of us who are followers of Jesus, we're all waiting for Jesus. Because 2,000 years ago, he said he was going to return. And we're wondering, when's he coming? And we live our life waiting for him. Now, Jesus knew that we would struggle with waiting. And so he talked about the future and he talked about this sense of waiting and he talked specifically about what God has for you and for me in seasons of waiting. And today we're going to look at the words of Jesus about waiting. So if you have a Bible, I wanna encourage you to open it up to Luke chapter 19. We're gonna be exploring a parable that Jesus teaches to his earliest followers and to you and to me about what God has for us in times of waiting. And the first thing that we're going to learn from Jesus about waiting is this very important truth. It's that God wants us to trust him and his timing. And honestly, this is one of the most frustrating aspects of having to wait is trusting in timing that isn't ours. God's timing is not our timing. But the reality is when we don't trust God's timing, we're not trusting in God. So we need to trust in him and in his timing, even and especially when his timing doesn't feel like it matches up with our timing. And, and that's where Jesus is gonna go with this parable that he teaches. This is how Luke begins the setup for this parable. It says, the crowd was listening to everything Jesus said. And because he was nearing Jerusalem, which is Luke's reminder for us that Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's on his way to fulfill his mission about bringing salvation and redemption for you and for me. And, and he says, he told them a story, and here's the key phrase, to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. See, Jesus knew that God's timing wasn't our timing. And that was specific to the people in that context and the specific to the people that were about ready to hear this parable that Jesus is to teach. But it's also for you and for me. We need to be reminded that God's timing is not our timing and that the kingdom of God doesn't come the way in which we think it will or at the time that we think it will. And in fact, the timing of when Jesus arrived actually reminds us that we can trust in God and we can trust in his timing, even when it seems like we have to wait for a long time. So here's a quick history lesson for uh, those of us that are a little bit removed from uh, this point in time in terms of when Jesus is, is teaching this parable. 
if you go back in history, about a thousand years before Jesus in the nation of Israel, they were in their heyday. They had a wonderful king and King David and everything seemed like it was going well. They were prospering and following God. But then there was a couple generations later, some strife that had begun in the nation of Israel. And there was a civil war that broke out. The northern 10 tribes separated from the southern two tribes and down south in the southern kingdom called Judea, that was where uh, the Jerusalem was located. And, and there was this strife and animosity between the northern and the southern parts of Israel. And the northern tribes decided that they were gonna move away and they stopped following God. In fact, throughout the rest of history, they never had a king that faithfully followed God in the northern kingdoms. And God warned them. He said, if you continue in this behavior, I'm going to have another nation come and, and punish you. And there's going to be consequences for not following me. And sure enough, that's what happened. The Assyrian Empire overran the northern kingdoms about 722 B.C., and that was a problem for some of the prophets of Israel because they looked at the Assyrians and they were pagans and they were these evil people. And, and they said, God, how could you use these evil people to punish us? And God said, this is the consequence for not following me, but it's only temporary. There is going to come a savior from Israel that will restore all things and provide salvation. And so that was the promise. And eventually the Assyrian empire fell not to a savior from Israel. The Assyrian empire fell to the Babylonians who conquered even a larger area. And they took over not only what the Northern kingdoms of Israel and the surrounding region, but also the Southern kingdoms. They, they ransacked Jerusalem and they hauled off all the Jewish people and brought them into 70 years of exile. And things had just gotten worse for Israel. But eventually the Babylonians fell, but not to a savior from Israel. It was to the Medes and the Persians who allowed the Jewish people to go back to their land, but they didn't allow them to govern themselves. But eventually the Medes and the Persians fell, but not to a savior from Israel. It was eventually to Alexander the Great and the Greeks who went and took over a majority of the known world at the time. And when Alexander the Great died, there was this moment when the generals in the Greek empire were, were fighting over who was going to control which territory, that Israel had a small rebellion that broke out, a little bit of an act of independence. It was called the Maccabean Revolt, about 150 years before Jesus came. And it seemed like maybe this was going to be the salvation moment, but all of that hope was squashed when the Romans took over the entire known world. And so when Jesus is teaching the people about the timing of God's kingdom, we have to be reminded that, that they have almost a thousand years of disappointing history. Things have gone from bad to worse and they have been longing and waiting for a savior to come. And now Jesus is correcting the impression that the kingdom of God isn't gonna come right away. And they were struggling with the Romans because the Romans had declared that they were God that they were the conquerors of the conquerors, that no one could come against them. And Israel was incredibly frustrated by that. But what they didn't understand was that all of this was just a setup by God. See, every time there was a conquering nation that took over the previous empire, the worldwide infrastructure grew. And by the time Rome was in charge, there was a series of interconnected roads all throughout the known world. And see, what Rome thought was their success and their might and their strength actually was just God using them as a 
subcontractor to create the infrastructure that he needed because it was on those Roman roads that the message of Jesus spread like wildfire throughout the known world. Here's the reality. If Jesus would have come 150 years before he did, that Roman road system wasn't yet established and the message of Jesus wouldn't have been able to go as far and as fast around the world. And if Jesus would have come 200 years after he did, Rome was already starting to turn in on itself and didn't have the stability for uh, the message to be able to go as far and fast as it did. It was the perfect moment in history when Jesus came for the message about Jesus to go around the world. And so just the timing of Jesus reminds us of this really important truth. And we need to be reminded of this in our seasons of waiting. If God is asking you to wait, it doesn't mean he's late. It just means he has something bigger in mind. See, the waiting for Jesus to come was all this enormous setup for the purpose of God to prevail. Folks, we need to be reminded of that right now. Some of us are discouraged by things that we're seeing that are happening in our nation or in the world, and we feel like maybe God's forgotten about his promises. He has not at all. He is just setting up something bigger. And that thing that's bigger is always about other people hearing about Jesus. In fact, the apostle Peter, who followed Jesus and and did life with them and learned from Jesus, he writes this near the end of his life in his letter. He says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, but instead he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, the timing of God, that prolonged sense, the the sense when he's asking us to wait, it's because God is, is allowing more time for more people to hear about Jesus and more people to follow after him. The waiting of God is always about more people coming into a relationship and repentance with God. And that leads us to the second thing that God has for us in seasons of waiting, and it's this important truth. It's that Jesus expects us, you and me, those of us who are followers of Jesus, he expects us to grow the kingdom. And when I say kingdom here, here, here's what I mean by that. Uh, The kingdom of God is what happens when God's in control. And when Jesus died on the cross for the punishment of our sins and he was risen from the grave, he he inaugurated, he instituted the kingdom of God here on earth. And when you and I accept Jesus, that kingdom of God becomes resident in our lives. And every time that happens with an individual, the kingdom of God grows by one more person and we get an opportunity to bring that kingdom here on earth. And, And so in a way, The kingdom of God is already here on earth, but it's not fully here because there are more people that still need to hear about Jesus. And at some point in the future, Jesus will return. And when he returns, he's going to bring the fullness of his kingdom. So you could say the kingdom is is already here, but not yet. It's not fully here, but we get to play a small role in bringing that kingdom when somebody else hears about Jesus and the expectation that Christ has for you and for me is that we are part of growing that kingdom. And to illustrate that, Jesus tells this parable. That's really a parable about you and me and what we're supposed to do in this season 
of waiting. Here's the story that Jesus tells us. He says, a nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Before he left, he called together 10 of his servants and he divided among them 10 pounds of silver saying, invest this for me while I'm gone. But his people hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we do not want him to be our king. Talk about some drama, right? So this guy is about ready to become king and he gets his servants together and says, hey, take care of my business while I'm gone. I'm coming back soon and I'm gonna expect a return. Meanwhile, there is a rebellion against this guy who's gonna be king. And so there's this tension in the story. It's like, well, what's gonna happen when the nobleman returns, when the king returns? What's he gonna do in terms of taking care of this rebellion that happened in his land? And here's how Jesus continues the story. After he was crowned king, he returned and he called in the servants to whom he had given the money. He wanted to find out what their profits were. And here's what's fascinating about this story to me. My expectation would be that when the king returns, he's gonna squash the rebellion. I mean, wouldn't that be like the first priority to deal with those who were against him, to deal with those who didn't want this guy to be their king? But there's something really interesting about the order in which the king settles accounts. And I want you to pay attention to the order in which this story goes. So here's what happened. The first servant reported, Master, I invested your money and I made 10 times the amount. Well done, the king exclaimed. You're a good servant. You have been faithful with the little I entrusted to you, so you will be governor of 10 cities as your reward. The next servant reported, Master, I invested your money and I made five times the original amount. Well done, the king said. You will be governor over five cities. But the third servant brought back only the original amount of money and said, Master, I hid your money and I kept it safe. I was afraid because you are a hard man to deal with, taking what isn't yours and harvesting crops you didn't plant. And I don't know about you, I can feel a little bit of empathy for this third servant. I mean, think about the situation that he was in. There was a rebellion in the kingdom. People didn't want this guy to be their king and he was the servant of the guy that was to be named king. And so you can imagine the, the tension. I mean, people were probably out to get him because he was a representative and a servant of the king. And so at least he remained faithful to the king. At least he didn't lose the money. I mean, you can imagine in that type of an environment, you'd probably be scared to make a risky investment. So you would assume that probably the king's gonna have compassion on this guy for at least sticking with him in the midst of rebellion. That's not quite what happens. Here's how Jesus completes the story. You wicked servant, the king roared. Your own words condemn you. If you knew that I'm a hard man who takes what isn't mine and harvests crops I didn't plant, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. And then the king, turning to the others standing nearby, the king ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one who has 10 pounds. 
But master, they said, he already has 10 pounds. Yes, the king replied. And to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. And as for those enemies of mine who didn't want me to be their king, bring them in and execute them right here in front of me. And I find that fascinating that when the king returns, the people who are rebelling against him are not his first priority. In fact, the king seems to allow these people to choose to not follow him. Now there's consequences for not following him, but that's not his first priority. His first priority are his servants. Now this story that Jesus tells is not about a king in a distant land. It's actually a story about you and me and Jesus. And see, in the story, Jesus is the king. He's the one of noble birth who goes away to be crowned king and then to return. And he's the one who entrusted his business, growing his kingdom, to his servants. And that's any one of us who have become a follower of Jesus. We're the servants in the story. And what that means for you and for me is that when Jesus returns or when we go to meet him, he's going to expect that you and I have done something with what he has given to us. His expectation is that we've been growing the kingdom. So we could say it this way, judgment always begins with God's people. And this is, a, this is a, a new lesson for me or a challenging lesson for me because I, I grew up with this expectation that judgment uh, is always going to be about those who are against God. And that's true. And that is definitely happening in the future. But that doesn't seem to be God's first priority. His first priority is always to settle accounts with his own people. And now, one thing that we just need to clarify, when we use that word judgment, we often think about judgment in really negative terms. We, we think about judgment being condemning. You know, we'll say things like, hey, don't judge me. But, but that's not how the Bible understands the word judgment. Whenever God uses the term judgment, it's always the idea of making things right or setting things to rights. It's the idea that if somebody has done a good job, and, but they haven't been paid for their work, that a judgment would be rendered that that person is paid the money that they're owed. Or that if someone took something that didn't belong to them, then they're forced to suffer a punishment or make that right. That's a sense of, of judgment. It's a putting things to right. And the idea there is that God's first priority is to settle accounts with you and with me as his own people. And I have to be honest with you, that's something that weighs really heavy on me. I mean, I hear that story and I understand that truth and, and I realize that I'm probably, I mean, give or take a few years, I'm probably 50 years or less away from standing face to face with Jesus, either from him returning or, or me passing through this life and standing in front of him and having to give an account on how I live my life. I mean, within the next 50 years, I'm probably gonna stand in front of Jesus and he's gonna say, hey, Kyle, 
I gave you Stephanie to be your wife. I want to know, because you were her husband, how did my kingdom grow? Hey, hey Kyle, I, I entrusted two children to you. You were the dad of Brooks and Sadie. How did my kingdom grow in their lives because you were their father? Or, hey, Kyle, I gave to you some financial resources on loan that wasn't yours, it was mine, and I gave it to you, and I want to know how is my kingdom bigger? How did my kingdom grow because of what you did with the financial resources that I gave to you? Or, Kyle, I allowed you to be a leader at Wooddale Church. What did you do with that? How is my kingdom bigger because of how you led? And folks, that's a conversation that is in my future. And I want to be prepared that in this season of waiting, I'm ready for that conversation. And I want to make sure that you're ready for that conversation as well. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, that conversation's in your future as well. Now, here's some good news. We know how Jesus is going to assess how that conversation goes. We know what type of judgment he's going to be looking for or type of accounting he's going to be looking for. And here it is. Here's the question. It's how is hope growing because of you? Because that's what God's kingdom is all about. It's about the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's about how we can live our life, not by our own effort and our own strength anymore, but animated by God's spirit because we're trusting in him and not in ourselves. And the message of Jesus is a message of hope and reconciliation and restoration. And when we know that story and we get to communicate that story and live that story out, hope grows around us. And that's what Jesus is going to be asking. So you may be asking, okay, well, so if that's in my future, how can I be ready for that? And I think the message is we don't need to overcomplicate this. We just need to do what those servants did in the story. They made an investment with what they were given. See, I think the challenge is far too many people who are Christians today or call themselves Christians or who are followers of Jesus they approach their faith as it's something that they're interested in, but it's not something that they're invested in. And I think that's the opportunity for us to become invested in our faith. So really practically, this, this is kind of what I'm talking about. You know, for many people, they're interested in their faith because they attend church a few times a month and it's casual. They'll watch online or they'll be at one of the campus locations in person and and that's good. That's a good step. But if you're just kind of casually showing up a couple times a month, you're interested in faith, but to become invested, what if you committed to join as a member? Because when you become a member, you're not saying that this is a perfect church. There, there is no perfect church. But you're saying, I'm committed to being part of this. And I'm committed to helping the message of this church, which is the good news about Jesus, grow. And I'm going to be part of helping that message of Jesus go to more people who need to hear it. 
And you're just making a commitment to do that and to be held accountable for it. Or how about this? Uh, Oftentimes we can come to church or we can watch online and just enjoy the environment. I've heard from so many of you who are saying, I I just got to tell you, I'm loving this online experience. Or I love being at the Loring Park campus. Or we love the Edina campus. Or we love the great room here at Eden Prairie. We just love the environment. And that's awesome. And we're glad that you love that environment. But what if you became invested to help create that environment for others by serving? You know, you could be part of our tech team to help run cameras or be part of the greeting team to welcome people in to one of the physical locations or help with our online services by being one of the prayer leaders that, that is there on the online service to help create that environment for other people. That's an opportunity for you to make an investment. Or how about this? Some folks are are comfortable giving a little bit. They'll they'll give comfortably. But if you're invested in your faith, you're taking a risk to be invested. You're giving sacrificially. You're saying, I'm going to be invested in my contributions. Or, Or maybe this. There are so many people right now who are people who are interested in faith and they are worried about the future. They see the next generation and they're wringing their hands and saying, I'm worried about where this next generation is going. But if you're invested, you're not worried about the future because you're serving the next generation. Maybe you're serving the next generation in in one of the ministries here at Wooddale Church through Woods Kids or through our student ministry program or coming alongside a young adult and helping to uh, mentor them. It's an opportunity to say, I'm going to invest in another individual, invest in, in that next generation to help make a difference. And when we talk about serving, whether it's the next generation or in one of our environments here at church or wherever, some of you may be saying, but I, you know, Kyle, I don't, I don't know if that's for me or you know, wh- where specifically could, could I kind of find my niche? And, and if you're wondering that, I, hang with us because uh, we're about ready to start in a few weeks, a brand new series that's all gonna be about finding our purpose, even in seasons of uncertainty. And Dale's been working on this message and you're gonna be excited about it. I'm really looking forward to it. And we're gonna help you find your purpose so you'll know where you can be invested and help to serve. Or if you're interested in faith, but not really invested, you like to huddle with believers. You don't want to deal with people who don't believe what you don't believe. And you just kind of like, keep those unbelievers away from me. But if you're invested, then you're actively working to share your faith with other people. And if you're like, man, I don't even know where to begin. How, how would you start by, by sharing your faith with somebody else? It, it's, it's this, it's, it's through Adopt7. It, this is a, a ministry and an effort that we have here at Wooddale Church where we wanna encourage you to find seven people in your life. Maybe they're people you don't even know their names yet, but it's seven people that you have regular interactions with and you're just gonna do three things. You're gonna pray for them on a regular basis. You're gonna find opportunities to serve them to try to be invested in their life and help be a blessing to them, try to help hope grow in their life by serving them. And then when God provides an opportunity, and you're gonna pray that God will provide that opportunity, but when God provides you that opportunity, you'll have a chance to share with them about Jesus and about the difference that he has made in your life. And when you do that, you are being invested in them and invested in the kingdom. Now, this all kind of builds to like a bigger question, right? Because the question is like, well, if Jesus expects us to be part of helping his kingdom grow, why is that? 
Because the reality is God doesn't need us for his kingdom to grow. He, he can do that on his own. And the reason that God expects us to be part of growing his kingdom is because he doesn't want something from us. Folks, he, he wants something for us. He wants us to be part of his happiness. The parable we just have been going through was recorded for us by Luke. There's another writer named Matthew who records the same parable, but when he records it in the gospel of Matthew, he adds on a phrase that Luke chose not to add in. And here's the way that Matthew uh, phrases this. Matthew, in the same parable, uh, records it this way, the words of Jesus. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things, just like what we heard from Luke. But then Matthew adds that the master said, come and share your master's happiness. Come and share your master's happiness because you grew what I asked you to grow. Come share in your master's happiness. It, it brings us to our third thing. This is what God wants for us in the midst of waiting. It's that we share in the happiness of Jesus when the kingdom grows. And that's what Jesus wants for you and for me, is to share in his happiness. And what makes him happy is when more people understand who he is and choose to follow him. So you can share in the happiness of Jesus when you become invested and help somebody else understand who Christ is. And that hope grows. Like Nathan, who volunteers in Woods Kids here at Wooddale Church. And two weeks ago, he had the opportunity to share in the happiness of Jesus because two kids in our Woods Kids program prayed to accept Jesus, to say yes to Jesus for the very first time in Woods Kids, and Nathan was part of that as a volunteer, and he got to share in the happiness of Jesus. Or it's like Carol, who heard about a woman who found our website. She came across Wooddale's website and watched one of our services, and she lives halfway around the world from where we're located here in Minnesota. But she watched the service, and she said yes to Jesus. And when Carol heard about it and she heard what country she was in, she got excited because she knows somebody in that country and she actually reached out to that woman and connected those two people. It turns out they live in the same city and Carol had a chance to share in the happiness of Jesus because she helped a woman meet another woman who's now meeting with her on a regular basis to study God's word and grow in her faith because Carol was invested enough to help make a connection. Or it's like Paul who was studying at Seven Corners Coffee a few weeks ago and struck up a conversation with another customer that was there and ended up sharing his faith in Jesus with that customer and had an opportunity to share in the happiness of Jesus as he talked about who Jesus is and the difference that Christ has made in his life. Or it's like Jillian, who's a student here at Wooddale Church, and she shared in the happiness of Jesus when she invited her friend to come to program and her friend said yes to Jesus at that program and Jillian had a chance to share in the happiness of Jesus. You can share in the happiness of Jesus even while you are waiting by letting others know about Christ and what he has done in your life. And here's the thing, I, I know you hear some of those stories and, and you think, Allison, I, 
Like that all sounds great, but I just don't know if, if I'm there. I don't know if I can do that. I, honestly, I, I don't know if I'm that type of a Christian. I, I don't know if I love God enough to take some of those steps. Here's the thing. If that's the question you're wrestling with, I don't know if I love God enough to do this. It's actually the wrong way to think about this. The question isn't, do I love God enough to live this out? The question is, do I understand how much God loves me? Because when you focus on how much God loves you, it just compels you to want to do this. And so don't focus on this message as a, as a list of things that you have to go run off and do and, and check boxes that you have to make. Instead, focus on how much God loves you and naturally you're gonna become invested in what matters to him. And naturally you're gonna start reaching out and sharing with others about the love of Jesus. So how much does God love you? Here's how much God loves you. God loves you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross, to take the punishment for your sins so that you could live a restored relationship with him. And he rose from the grave so that you would no longer be bound by sin and by death, that you'd be set free from that and be able to spend an eternity with him. That's how much God loves you. And God loves you so much that, that when Jesus came, and he started telling people about the love of God and the love of God the Father. Jesus inspired people who were the first people who ever heard this parable that we just went through. And those people heard that message and they were inspired by that and they decided that because God loved them so much, they needed to tell other people and so they did. And they went and told other people and those people told other people. And those people told other people and those people got on those Roman roads 2,000 years ago and they started going from town to town around the entire known world telling people about how much God loved them and they told people and they told people and they told people and for 2,000 years, people have been telling people who have been telling people also somebody could tell you how much God loves you and what God wants is for you to keep that going by telling somebody else how much God loves them. So you and so they can share in the happiness of Jesus. And one of the ways that we can be reminded about how much God loves us is actually through communion, which we're going to all do together right now. Because in communion, it is a very tangible reminder about the depth and the passion of God's love for us. And in a very real way, it reminds us that because God is so invested in us, we can be invested in him. So if you are watching us online at your home, hopefully you have some elements of bread and juice nearby. And if not, you can hit the pause button and go run and grab those and then come right back. And if you're with us in one of our venues, whether it's uh, at the Great Room here at Eden Prairie or at Edina or Loring Park or our West Bank campus, I, uh, when, when you walked in, you received one of these little communion packets. And so I, I wanna encourage you to take these elements, whether it's this packet or whatever else you, you have around you. And I want you just to hold them in your hands for a moment. And I want you to be reminded about how much God loves you.
Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you and Lord, we feel the weight of these elements. Father, as we hold them in our hand, we're reminded of what they symbolize. They symbolize the depth of your love for us. And so Father, I pray that as we think about the bread, which represents the body which you gave, or the cup which represents the blood that you shed. Father, I pray that we would remember well the depth of your love for us. And Father, that it would inspire us to be about your work of letting others know about your love as well. And so Father, I pray that in the stillness of this moment, we would remember how much you love us. And for those of you who are joining us online, I wanna invite you to join me in remembering the love of God as we receive communion together. It was on the night that Christ was betrayed that he was having dinner with his followers and he took bread and he told them, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And it was after supper that Christ turned his attention to the cup he told them, this cup represents a new covenant. That's a new deal, a new relationship between you and God by my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Father God, I, I pray for all of us who are watching uh, through Wooddale's sites, uh, Father, who are listening to this message uh, on a recording. Father, those who are in person, Lord, I pray that this simple meal would be a tangible reminder of your love and your commitment. And Father, I pray that it would inspire us to take a step to be about your work, to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, until the day in which Christ returns, while we eagerly await that day, we commit to being about your work and your kingdom. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.